Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Kendra Maurer. And tonight we're welcoming Brent Rains. He's a prolific author and an investigator. He's been investigating, started out with UFOs and ended up investigating all the strangeness that there is. And he's been doing it for a very long time. Good evening. Hey, good evening, Barbara, Kendra. It's good to be here again. <laughs> it's good to see you. Good to be um, <laughs> So tell us how you, you, you were just saying that you started out with UFOs and you thought it was simple. Oh, yeah. Um, back in, back very early, January 1967, I, I decided to become a ufologist, although I didn't know what that was at the time. Uh, but I remember clipping something out of the local newspaper and I lived up in in uh, Maine. That's where I was born and raised. And uh, we had had a, as well as the rest of the country, in March 1966, it was in all the papers and on the television about all the sightings. Mainly it was Michigan that was covered, but we had uh, sightings in Maine. I remember my father and I would, would skywatch some looking for something because the paper was filled with stories. The one I remember the most was a, a man, a John King up in Bangor, Maine, who claimed that he had seen a dome disc-shaped object just a foot or two off the ground, and he shot at it with a hand pistol, and he could hear at least a couple of pings from it hitting the metal. And so then I read Frank Edwards' Flying Saucer's Serious Business, which John Keel later told me was written in six weeks. I mean, it was a, quite a record. <laughs> you know, He wanted to cash in on all the interest. And... Uh, and when I read the book, I thought, here's credible people, police officers, pilots, and they're seeing these strange craft, obviously, that uh, sound like extraterrestrial objects. And so, um, you know, that must be what they are. Unless the Air Force is right, it's all swamp gas and temperature inversions of Venus and weather balloons and stuff like that. But I, I had my suspicion there was more to it. So that was, that was where I started out, collecting information on just the objects, the sightings, and and um, then over time, I began to, you know, I, I started a little newsletter called uh, Sauceritis, and it was mimeographed. And a lot of people did that back in the day. And I, I upgraded it to Scientific Sauceritis Review. And Sauceritis was, I saw that in, um, I was checking out Microfish, uh, uh, the local daily kinemic journal uh, in the, out of Augusta, Maine, and, and other newspapers. And seemed that some psychologist had, uh, back in 1947, I believe, had decided that all these sightings represented some kind of new disease in the human mind called sauceritis. I thought, well, <laughs> that's what I'll call my magazine, you know. Um, but anyway, over time, um, authors like uh, John Keel caught my eye. In fact, I had become at an early age uh, a local reporter for a newsletter out of uh, 
Florida, St. Petersburg, Florida, called Salsa Scoop. And uh, in fact, one of the people who worked with Salsa Scoop was Brad Steiger, although we hadn't connected at that time. But John Keel was submitting articles, and his address was always in his in the articles that he had post uh, published, that is, in, in the uh, Salsa Scoop. And so in October 1969, we began corresponding. And he had a newsletter called Anomaly that was filled with anomalous things. And uh, slowly over time, I became brainwashed. I mean, I became educated, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to all the high, strange crossover events that I reported in, in connection with UFOs and such. And, and so that was how I got my, my start uh, back as a teenager. And I always tried to write Keel, you know, letters. We had a, a good correspondence going there and swapped newsletters. And I would always try to uh, sound very adult because uh, I remembered he wrote that he was very annoyed by teenage UFO buffs and little old ladies in tennis shoes. So, <laughs> But I, I think he figured it out over time and didn't cuss me out. <laughs> Oh, but anyway, that, that's sweet. It little old ladies in tennis shoes back then got a lot of flack from a lot of people. I, I don't know what they were doing back then that it upset <laughs> people so much, but man, well, that was I, just I, a trope back then, you know? Yeah. I, I guess then they were supposed to be these, uh, um, well, I guess back then it was kind of like, uh, um, a field for men and people with scientific thinking yeah. and all this and that, you know, and scientists, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely evolved. <laughs> it's, yes. it's, there's a lot more to it. I think people are, are waking up to, uh, the fact that, um, we need to listen better and we need to explore a lot more areas than we have. Um, there's a whole uh, crossover of events, manifestations that we have have ignored. People, you know, Keel got a lot of flack because he was like one of the first ones to really come out and uh, really publicize this stuff. And uh, so anyway, I, I was so caught up in, you know, I'm sure that Keel had the most influence on me uh, when I began to read his materials and and uh, correspond with him, and so I I was saving up money and I spent pretty much the entire summer of '75 traveling from Maine down to Florida, um, going from house to house, uh, <laughs> interviewing researchers and experiencers uh, back then and in Ohio and uh, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Tennessee, where here I am today. <laughs> and, you know, um, and I did that for about two years, pretty, pretty steady. If some, I heard something going on, I would jump in the car pretty much and, and uh, head out. Um, some guy in Long Island called me. I don't know how he, I really don't remember now how he found out about me, but he said he uh, had these people in Somerville, New Jersey who were seeing Bigfoot and he thought I might be interested. So I went there and uh, stayed with a family that, you know, 
had a little place down in the basement. I was getting used to that sort of thing. And uh, spent nearly a week uh, going around interviewing people. And there were a lot of interesting reports of, of the Bigfoot, which is what they told me at first. And then I, uh, you know, found a house that had poltergeist activity. So I stopped and interviewed them. And, and then there was uh, uh, a family that had seen a flying saucer. And then, lo and behold, um, one of the Bigfoot witnesses said that uh, just two months before I was there, um, he was walking down a road one night by himself, and he heard footsteps behind him, and he turned around with his flashlight, and he said he was about 18 inches face-to-face with a Bigfoot. And oh. he said the creature blinked its eyes, and he said they were just like frozen looking at each other, you know. Uh, and uh, he said at this time there was a small little ball of light behind the Bigfoot and it was making like a high frequency sound and he said this went on for several seconds and then it uh, it went out and stopped and at that point uh, he continued on down the road and the Bigfoot went the other direction so <laughs> um, but I had found that you know different places I'd go that uh People would describe seeing Bigfoot and balls of light. There was a place here in Flintville, Tennessee, back in 76, um, where this guy told me that whenever the creature was around, they would see these balls of light just hovering over the treetops. And uh, I heard similar stories down around uh, Big uh, Brooksville, Florida. Uh, this is back in the 70s uh, when, you know, um, investigating people investigating the Bigfoot sightings, UFO sightings. They had a contact, John Reeves, in that town. So um seemed that Bigfoot was pretty active during the, the 70s and late 60s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the New Jersey place where you had all of the different things happening, was it a, a heavily wooded area or was it? suburban actually, actually yeah yeah there was uh, a lot of a lot of woods it was um um there were hills there and a lot of trees and uh it wasn't like other parts of new jersey where it's very industrialized right and um and it uh i think it kind of qualified as a window location as keel would have called it where there's just a lot of uh, a variety of anomalous phenomena that uh, occurs there yeah that's that's what it sounded like, you know, as you described it. Um, Is there like a, a continued history of that kind of activity in that area? So was it just that period of time or were there other times that there was activity? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, I know at that time there seemed and it, it had been going on for a while. Uh, I don't know what the status is. I've lost touch with the people there over yeah. the years and uh, and I'd kind of like to you know follow up I'm I'm sure I had other sources at the time that were also describing of all places a lot of activity in in New Jersey I mean just an hour or so outside of New York City you know mm -hmm. and uh, and so you don't have to be off uh, way off in British Columbia or somewhere uh, with right. a heavily forested area to see Bigfoot you can um, 
I found out that, uh, like in the Bahamas, uh, some people had seen a Bigfoot on an island there. You know, uh, I guess he's a good swimmer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere is safe. Nowhere is safe, no. <laughs> well, they've, they've been having some sightings around London, too, recently. Mm-hmm. You know, in the suburbs outside of London where you have, like, you know, I don't know, a stand of 15 trees or something. And that's... You know, so for it to be a flesh and blood relic hominid is kind of that follows railroad tracks in London is kind of, I don't know, Mm -hmm. doesn't sound very likely. Well, I know as a teenager, there was an area, you know, about, um, oh, 25, 30 miles from where I live called Palermo up in Plurimal, Maine, and, and uh, they had uh, these circular areas in a field that had stayed there for years and years. They didn't know what caused them, but the people had been seeing strange lights, UFOs. And, uh, and one family had described uh, the husband and wife both had seen on separate occasions uh, a Bigfoot. I remember one of them describing how it just seemed to defy gravity as it leapt across the road from one side to the other. And uh, so I consider that a, a window area. Um, yeah. Well, and that goes with that, that like fight with single footprint thing where they find one footprint and then nothing, or the mm-hmm. footprints just end. Yeah. Uh, like Tim Renner and uh, Joshua. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. book there. Yeah. Where the I know there in. was, there was a, series of sightings in Coshocton, Ohio, and that's been consistent over, you know, years. It's sort of cyclical. Um, but I, I remember reading one where they, there were footprints in the snow. You follow the footprints to the center of a field and they just stop. And the snow all around is undisturbed. And I'm like, so what happened? Did the UFO come pick him up? Yeah. Did he disappeared. Did he sink down into the earth? <laughs> Did he jump straight up in the air like Superman and fly away? What what happened? Did he have a jetpack? What yeah. what is going on? Yeah, and that just have... has to really get to an investigator after a while. Yeah. And of course for years investigators, you know, like a ufologist would be um, would go to a uh, look up, you know, something maybe was in the newspaper or maybe the organization there they were with, like MUFON, would notify them, oh, you've had a sighting in your area. And they would go and interview the person about the craft they saw. Uh, but if they described a poltergeist or if they described uh, some sort of cryptid, uh, say Bigfoot, um, their general response would have been, well, that's not my area. I'm just here to you know, area of expertise. I'm here to, to talk with you about the Bigfoot. You'll have to get in touch with some ghost hunters or uh, Bigfoot hunters or somebody like that to address the other. And we really need to have more, uh, you know, cross field or multidisciplinary dialogue going on. And and um, I'm, I'm thinking right now of a, a quote that John Keel made in one of his books where he talked about, you know, the ghost hunters are doing this. The um, uh, the Bigfoot hunters are uh, 
walking through a swampy area looking for the creature and the uh, someone else is on a hilltop looking at the lights and they don't realize that all of their individual disciplines are coming together and one day they're yeah. going to realize how they're interconnected yeah um, but um but I wonder at how much the internet has influenced that uh, community building where people start reading stories and sharing stories. And that's uh, something I love about social media myself. Mm -hmm. is that it's, it's this great opportunity to tell and hear stories from different people from different regions and kind of reach out and reach across you know, thousands of miles and learn about something that somebody else is experiencing that may be a lot like what something you just experienced. Yeah, so, it was... Uh... It was kind of frustrating. Uh, there were parts of it I liked, but in the early days of, you know, getting in the field, I mean, um, you know, as I say, I was a teenager. My father didn't like uh, me using the home phone to make long distance calls. I would, a friend and I would get on the, uh, the phone call operators. And back in those days, you could hold of a live person and ask them, could you give me the phone number of, let's see, it's in this magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I would I would call yeah. them up. Usually I went to a pay phone, you know, <laughs> be putting mm -hmm. in quarters. And I'd, I'd uh, ask people about uh, their experiences, sometimes write them a letter. If I could get the address from the operator, which sometimes they give me the address. I think, oh, golly, okay. And mm -hmm. uh I had people who, you know, wrote back some really interesting things, uh, uh, fill out my little uh, sauceritis uh, survey thing and, and, and send it back, you know. Um, I remember there was a lawyer uh, filled out a story about uh, some objects he had seen out in California, and uh, I thought that was pretty cool. A deputy sheriff out in Colorado, a cylindrical object, um, even a guy in Alaska who had seen something hovering for two or three hours and he said it couldn't have been a weather balloon because it was just in that one one place for so long of course um, that was in the early days when i was after the sightings of the objects now i've gotten you know off into um uh, went down the rabbit hole i guess <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to uh, do yeah. yes yeah and um so anyway um chris Keel, as I said, was a big influence, and I just decided one day that uh, I really, you know, because I followed so much and there's other people, uh, I would try to contact some of the people that knew him. I already knew a few of them, and uh, Rosemary Guiley helped me a lot in that regard, too. Uh, she read my script and helped to uh, uh, get it ready for publication. Uh, she originally was going to publish it because as we all know now she had cancer and uh so i had to end up self-publishing but um it was uh you know she thought that i needed more interviews than i had uh, originally i was going to simply write a, a little booklet and so uh rosemary and another publisher said no 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 <clears throat> you uh need to go much much deeper so i decided to make it not just about, you know, biography of Keel, but uh, the ongoing mysteries, you know, the things that I had found too, along with other people who had looked into similar things, people who were, I, I really uh, was very lucky to get in touch with Dan Drazen, who was mentioned several times in Mothman Prophecies. He now lives in California. He was a documentary producer, um, still is. And uh, 
he went with Keel down there to uh, Point Pleasant back in 67 and met many of the witnesses and became good friends with Mary Heyer. He even had like a premonition at the time that she passed away. Um, and and uh, he said she was very psychic and they became instant friends. She felt like uh, they knew each other in her previous lifetime. I mean, you know, and uh, it uh, he also was uh, confirmed a, a lot of the different stories like um, he described the one I, that's in the Mothman prophecies of where there's a, a plane that's flying along and it goes behind a cloud and then out comes a UFO and everybody's scratching their head. He was there and witnessed that as well. So in an interview with him, he also told that story. That's cool. and, uh, and uh, yeah, that's one of the stories that um, I've heard other people not not say it was an out and out lie, but maybe it was exaggerated. So when I read that, I was very happy to see that there was another witness that was there who came forward, used his name, said, no, I was there. I saw that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, you know, it was very important to connect with, with the people. I, if I had known I was ever going to write about, I mean, I, at, you know, I was very grateful to, um, John Keel for put me on this path, you know, the insight that he provided in his writings, personal and published, but uh, it was never my plan to write a book. Um, but when I decided I, you know, that I should, um, I decided to not just tell the past history, but to add on to it, uh, the continuing thoughts and theories and, and evidence that has merged over the years since uh, he first uh, introduced all of this to us and has passed on and my own involvement. Um, but um, anyway, um, and then uh, even, you know, and you guys, Six Degrees of John Keel, I mean, wow, <laughs> <laughs> extraordinary. Um, and the, the experiences, because Athens is right close to Point Pleasant. And uh, I didn't know all this activity was going on there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's intriguing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, the, there's, there's people who have, you know, made it very difficult for Keel back in the day. And he, uh, he presented a lot to think about. Now, uh, it, it seems like with the, like in the Mothman prophecies, some of the things, uh, like the the thing about the the glowing red eyes, um, there's been criticisms by various cryptozoologists presenting evidence that uh, those were reflections. You know, well, they're not. <laughs> I see them. They're not. Yeah, <laughs> they're but distinctly I, not reflections. Well, <laughs> Okay, um, you know, uh, I know there's a lot of cases, yeah, not just Mothman, but you know, a mm -hmm. lot of cases where they did have glowing eyes. Um, but actually, when you, uh, thanks to Alan Greenfield, who also knew Keel and was um, had him down to Atlanta, Georgia, back I think in '68, and do a do a talk down there, he had uh, he was good friends with you know Gray Barker and uh, Jim Mosley and and John Keel. And uh, he posted a interview that 
Ray Barker did with uh, Linda Skyberry, Roger Skyberry, and, and the other young couple on that night in the TNT area when they saw the Mothman, had that experience, or what became called the Mothman, and originally it was the bird. But um, that was, uh, what was that, December 15th, 1966, that that happened. And anyway, uh, in the recording where Gray Barker interviewed them, uh, soon after the experience, they were they were describing you know the car lights hit him and the eyes flared up red. So in that instance, but then you know I know everybody talks about confabulation over the years, but I went I went down there in May of um, let's see, <laughs> um, May of. Uh, 1976 yeah it was almost 10 years later and i had some friends with me from the cincinnati area who were interested in this sort of thing spent a weekend and i got to talk uh, briefly with linda skyberry and i was really surprised when uh you know i asked talking about mothman she mentioned you know other sightings and i says well, how many have you had her answer was hundreds um, she described how one time she was in an apartment in downtown Point Pleasant and she looked out a second story window and it was out, uh, outside the window, just a few inches. And she said it had protruding red glowing eyes, self-luminous. So she claimed in that instance, uh, the eyes were glowing. Um, and I was kind of surprised Keel had, uh, that I know of had never written about her multiple sightings. Um, if, but uh, if I may add, um, I don't know if I've probably talked about, it. I actually experienced Mothman at one point. And the reason it, the quality doesn't change as the headlights move across it. Whereas with a reflector, there's a change in the quality of the light. It didn't change. The, the eyes were consistent. Okay. In my experience. Did you see it? I remember we talked about it uh, earlier, yeah. and mm -hmm. and it was it was standing on on the roadside, right? Yeah. Did it ever go airborne, or mm -hmm. when you saw it? No, when it, I saw it. Did you see wings, or? It was it it was up behind. So okay. it was like yeah, so it was like the the mound of the head, and then the things protruding up on the, the, like wings sticking up, like folded back wings. Oh, okay. So it didn't take flight. It, uh, the, it didn't, we weren't staring at it long enough. <laughs> <laughs> we were getting the hell out of there, but. You, mean, you didn't get out and shake his hand or. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I, I was not inspired to do so. <laughs> no. Okay. So. Yeah, and of course, that a lot of people, something like that, their natural reaction is to be startled, frightened. Yeah. Um, and some people feel that it actually somehow causes their fright, that it projects mm -hmm. some sort of uh, uh, psychic fear vibe in them or something. It, um, it really, I couldn't tell you if I saw it or felt it first, but there was very a very definite thickness of it's it's a nightmare it, it's the feeling you have when you're having a night terror like you can't scream you can't take a breath you know you're in danger but 
there's no conscious thought. You're just frozen in that state. Have you ever done any investigation of alien abduction cases? Have you ever talked with any alien abductees? Uh, yeah, yeah. Alien abductees and, and contactees. Um, and uh, all of these elements crop up in both. It's just the way that they, you know, the experience affects them a little differently and the way they interpret it, you know, the abducted, ver you know, some people who at first feel they were abducted later become contactees. So, it, you know, but essentially the experience is, has many of the same elements, the crossover, high strangeness and such. Um, so anyway, um, that was a, <laughs> uh, what can I say? Uh, I, um, I had done a survey a few years ago. I was going to um, survey a, a lot of experiences, contactees and abductees, and I found pretty much the, the same crossover phenomena with, with both of them, you know, the psychic elements pronounced, uh, poltergeist, ghosts, and, um, and cryptotype phenomena, and some even seeing um, elemental beings, you know. Um, right here in Tennessee had a... Uh, college professor who has uh he's an artist and he has his own art studio where he works on a lot of the uh works out a lot of his um you know uh experiences in his artwork and um whereas some of the experiences he had are, are just the regular uh sounding craft and alien abductions uh he's had some that were very uh kind of mystical uh, psychic and and one time he was um over on this island off of uh scotland and he'd had a number of experiences there uh some years back and one of them when he was uh hiking with a, a priest along the shoreline a rocky shoreline and they were trying to get back before the sun went down and they came up on a flat area with a small uh, stone structure house that didn't have a door and it didn't have windows on it. And uh, and then uh, I thought, this is kind of strange. And they're looking around and suddenly they see what amounts to a small foot and a half tall leprechaun. And um, it sees them, they see it, and it jumps over the edge. And they rush over and look down, and there's a bunch of boulders, but the leprechaun is gone. Um, and uh, I remember interviewing uh, Francis Swan up in Elliott, Maine, the one that the naval scientists studied back in the 50s. And uh, she had some pretty interesting stories where she described other people seeing these things too. And then one day she describes looking out... Uh, a window while a granddaughter was sleeping and her granddaughter had uh as i recall been kind of ill at the time and outside the window she saw these uh fairy beings with wings and uh, and she was also reading a book about uh mystics of the east and one day she described how a uh, a holy man with a donkey appeared in her in her house, you know, 
And, uh, you know, I don't think uh, there's much been written about those things. Uh, mostly people are interested in her automatic writing with a being named Afa and uh, what other witnesses claim to have seen around her as in terms of, you know, the spacecraft. But, yeah, she had a lot of, uh, you know, psychic, mystical type stuff going on. And uh, that's what's so interesting about it, you know, that uh, you keep coming across these again and again. Although most people in the mainstream of ufology aren't going to be talking too much about it or haven't in the past. Hopefully we can change that. But uh, And I thought you guys would be interested. Uh, it's, in, it's in my book on John Keel. Um, but uh, I had come across where he had, uh, interviewed uh, Colin Wilson back in uh, 1974 and uh, Keel had claimed at that time that for a number of years he had been working on uh, an idea for a book. He'd been interviewing people who were involved in uh, witchcraft and who claimed to have partial uh, control to some extent of elementals and he felt that uh, Back in his early years, he was headed in that direction as well. <clears throat> um, but he decided to devote a lot of his time to uh, uh, studying scientific areas like physics and chemistry uh, to get his mind away from that that sort of area. And by the time of eighteen, he had, you know, kind of pulled himself out of that uh, state of mind. Although he claimed that at age eighteen too, he had this. Uh, experience where there was a glowing in his room he was had some kind of residence just off times square and he uh one night he said he he suddenly knew the answer to everything you know and he felt one with the the universe it was one of those cosmic consciousness type experiences but by morning uh he could only remember a little bit of it and he felt that something had been downloaded and Rosemary Guiley in the forward to my book said that uh, while Keel always felt that uh, a lot of the experiences were wired a little differently, he never really talked about himself, but she felt that he certainly was, you know, himself. And uh, I was particularly impressed with an interview that uh, Tim Beckley did back around 1984 with Keel. And in that interview, he was uh, telling about when he was only like seven years old that he had with his uh, stepfather and his mother, they were out driving through an area of New York state and there was a huge sphere shaped light on the top of a hill. They initially thought that a barn was on fire until this round sphere rose up into the air and they could see it wasn't a, a barn. It was a UFO. And then it just went whoosh, shot off into the sky and out of sight at a terrific speed. Um, Keel later found that, uh, you know, as he wanted to question them again about the experience, that they had no memory at all about it, which kind of surprised him. <laughs> and that was something that, you know, along with the fact that uh, their farmhouse uh, had a poltergeist uh, back in his teenage years, and he would he tried to communicate with it using wrapping, you know, his bedroom wall would wrap and he would try to wrap back and communicate with it. There was a, like a gorilla uh, when he was age 10 that was reported by people crossing the road near the, 
near the family farm and people grabbed their guns and went out to shoot it and then it just disappeared. Um, so that is when I say disappeared, I mean, they didn't see it disappear. Just the activity was there. People were scared and then it, uh, it stopped as often these things do. So, um, and like, uh, Rosemary said, you know, um, someone wired differently, who else, but someone who would, uh, eventually go off to the Orient and track, uh, Yeti, uh, in Tibet and, um, have all the experiences traveling around the world that he did, um, writing a book called Jedu in 1957. And, uh, and, uh, Jedu being, of course, uh, in the Orient, black magic. Um, he was a, he originally thought about becoming a stage magician and he practiced magic all his life and uh, was even, I understand, writing a book about uh, uh, magic, but uh, no one seems to know what, what happened to that book. But uh, anyway, his idea as he trekked through the Orient from Egypt to Singapore was to uh, expose a lot of uh, you know, the magic tricks that were used on tourists and such uh, that really weren't psychic, but sometimes they'd pretend they were psychic phenomena, uh, like blindfolded and driving through the streets, you know, I'm using my x-ray vision and such. Uh, but Keel was genuinely mystified by some of the, the experiences that he had. He met a holy man who could seemingly read his mind. Um, and uh, I remember one incident, he was in a... Uh, a temple and this guy was supposed to call in the spirits and he was uh, went into a trance sitting in front of a Buddha statue and suddenly there was a, a strange sound on the roof and uh, a breeze went through and blew out a candle and uh, a little wooden stool kind of come out of a dark corner and started circling around Keel who was seated in a chair and Keel reached out looking for the usual trappings you know uh, some sort of strings or something and uh, then the little wooden stool, I think it was a three-legged stool, went back to another corner. And uh, then the guy came out of his trance and Keel went over to the corner and checked the little stool out and could find no explanation for what he had just observed. And uh, that, and of course, the Yeti thing, he would go from one village to another and it was like Yeti was just there and uh, they would find footprints and... Uh, hear the call that was attributed to the the yeti and one time he actually saw at the far end of a, a lake this thing that the locals said was a yeti but keel said he couldn't tell that it was whether it was a yeti or a bear although um he said a guy in new york who wanted to publish the story said just say it was a yeti keel just say it was a yeti <laughs> 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 so anyway um but uh, um, of course, Keel. When I when I wrote the book, uh, another another good uh, interview that I that I came across was uh, Sandra Martin, who had been one of his literary agents, and um, he would come by her office, and she would um, if if she was busy, Keel would just keep going on, but if she wasn't, he'd step in and uh, to her office and ask her if she wanted to go out to lunch. 
and uh, they would go down to some old hotel down the road. And on the first floor, there was a, a restaurant, and he would always want to go to the back where on Thursdays, these magicians would uh, be seated. And he would always introduce her, this is my literary agent. <laughs> and <laughs> so, and then uh, she said, then one day when uh, um, the movie, uh, the Mothman Prophecies was to going to come out and he had some money in his pocket. Um, he took her out to eat and told the waiter, said, uh, whatever she wants, get it for her. <laughs> <laughs> I think usually she had uh, been, been paying for <laughs> some of the meals. But nice. anyway, she said that uh, one of the interesting experiences she had with Keel, she said uh, he was one of her favorite writers and uh, she really liked how he the way he wrote things and explained things and said he took care of his friends. She said that she, um, they had been both invited to attend a psychic demonstration at the home of Ingo Swan. And down on the basement, they had, uh, he had a big room where he could seat a lot of people. And uh, so anyway, um, this guy from some foreign country, she couldn't remember what country it was, but he, got up and uh, he put his hands out in front of uh, some object and it looked like it was levitating. And they were sitting right out front. There were news people there and he tapped her on the shoulder and leaned over and said, we've got to go now. And so she followed him out the door out on the sidewalk and she says, okay, John, what's this about? And he said, I can take you down to a magic shop just down the road from here. And in five minutes, I can have you doing that trick. <laughs> so the, uh, <laughs> that's not a, a true demonstration of anything psychic. And uh, so, you know, um, and then I, I wrote to Doug Skinner and uh, he in, informed me that, uh, yeah, that the, the parapsychologist who was responsible for bringing that psychic to the home of Ingo Swan. Um, Keel had spoken to him. I don't know if this was after or before, but uh, he said he was there and Keel was telling him that uh, you really need to watch out about, uh, you need to have some familiarity with how magic tricks are formed because uh, that will, you know, mess up your, your work. <laughs> And he said the parapsychologist was not too happy with Keel, but he listened. <laughs> and uh, so I just thought that was kind of interesting, you know, that uh, he was, um, you know, concerned about how it might damage his and her reputation if they hung around for this um, so-called psychic demonstration and their pictures ended up in the newspaper. You know, here's a couple of experts. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Keel, you know. A lot of people have pointed out inaccuracies, um, you know, to try to discredit him. And yeah, there were, there were some. But uh, in one of his anomalies, he went to great lengths to correct some of them. And he said that like his, his book, Operation Trojan Horse, had, um, they publishers sent him the galleys and he corrected them, sent them back. And then they published the book without the corrections anyway. So he, 
Then he why send galleys? <laughs> yeah. So he went ahead and he, uh, you know, uh, did uh, did the best thing he could. He put this information out in anomaly, which those anomalies now I think are all uh, digitally uh, online, where you can can read those newsletters. You'll actually yeah, find my really... name back in my teenage years where I was uh -huh. listed for some information. <laughs> um, they're they're um, digitally archived, and they're also there's a published version of them in book form. So, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's all of them. It may not be. I'm not sure now. I just yeah. ordered it. So I'll have to look. But I have but, uh, the PDFs that I've downloaded off of the um, digital archive. But um, anyway, it. Uh, um, I know there was, you know, the one of the areas that I just actually put in my uh, Facebook uh, alternate perceptions was about incidents where. Um, People see houses that disappear and, you know, they're not there later or, or various things like that. Or one case where there was over in England, um, a family that uh, came across a lake that had a rock with a, um, a sword stuck in it, you know. And they were just, oh, this is the greatest thing. And then 15 years later, they, they still couldn't find that place again. Um, but one of the cases I, you know, that Keel had wrote about was the Steve McChallock case up in Canada back in 1967. The man who was burned by the by his encounter had the checkerboard burns on his chest and was in and out of, uh, you know, the hospital. And uh, Keel wrote how he never found that place where that happened. So there was another incident. So I decided to look into it and I wrote um, a uh, Chris Rachonsky uh, uh, or oh well uh, Rachonsky I think something like that up in Canada who had just written a book with Steve Michalik's son on that story and I wrote him about what Keel had written and uh, um, he said initially when he first came out of the hospital after the experience he couldn't find it but he was not you know feeling his best but he said they Later, he did, so Keel didn't get the, you know, the, the later pot. So they did find the location, um, according to him. And uh, Keel also wrote about, um, and he, he actually, you know, this was really, really uh, a good thing that he wrote. He wrote about people often seeing, and I, I mentioned it toward one of the letter chapters of my, my book, because there's a number of cases I'd come across of seeing, like, after an encounter or during the encounter, a kind of like eye type thing. And uh, Keel was, was interested in that particular archetype. Uh, he even said some schizophrenics have uh, this kind of a vision. They see all these eyes and stuff. And, you know, in the um, Pascagoula case, Charles Hickson saw some kind of an eye that he was an eye-like thing that was examined by. And, and, and I wrote to, um, you know, I looked up in the, the book, in The Interrupted Journey, about... Um, the Betty and Barney Hill case, and and Keel described the the eyes, but he anyway the way he wrote it um, was incorrect about uh, the number of of eyes. 
Um, as I recall, it was just one eye, the way he said, and turned out it was two. I wrote to Kathy um, Marden, uh, who was, of course, uh, Betty Hill's niece, and is, of course, now a well-known investigator in the field, and uh, turned out that uh, Keel should have maybe read that a second time, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you want to pick semantic hairs, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's <laughs> things go wrong sometimes. And, uh, but his ideas and, and uh, you know, all the evidence that he had, uh, there was definitely some, some real high strange things. And he, he brought out uh, all these things that we needed to look at that many people at the time were unfortunately ignoring. And some people who were paying attention to it for some reason changed their minds later and went jumped back on the uh, mainstream ET bandwagon and just tried to yeah. ignore all that Keelian stuff that they had been interested in. Uh, I remember one person in particular who said, well, that was back in my hippie days. <laughs> 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 so I, I guess I never got over my, uh, my hippie days. Actually, I never was a hippie, but you know, if I had been, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's there a, been... I think, I think the only sin that, that Keel can be said to have truly committed was he didn't always have indices. There wasn't always an index in his books. I like indexes. They make me happy. Yeah. <laughs> they make life a lot easier. They make life easier when I'm trying to find one passage. Yeah. And I know basically what it says, and I know, or I think I know which book it's in. But then I spend half the damn day looking for it, and then I have to call Morgana, and she says, "Oh, mom, it's it's in it's in Strange Creatures from Time and Space." And oh, thank you. Okay, it's the one I didn't look in. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he I would wonder, have. I wonder, though, in reference to the eyes, is it the cherubim? Or yes. Seraphim. That's cherubim. All eyeballs. Cherubim. Eyeballs, wings, and spurts of fire. Yeah, that makes me wonder, you know, if that's like a ancient experiencer. is refer They are experiencing what the present people are experiencing, but using different terms and imagery. Because yeah, whatever would, fits in with the culture. Yeah, he said it... Uh, was very prominent in occult literature. Yeah. And uh, he also, you know, of course, the Marian apparitions, he delved into that. And yeah. I remember one of them, there was, um, I think, an eye type thing in a pyramid. And he talked yeah. about the dollar bill with the pyramid and the eye at the, mm -hmm. at the top. Um, and Keel was just immersed in, in so much. I know um, with the letters that I got, he would suddenly go off and be talking about uh, the Illuminati and, and all these strange things. And 16-something or rather, there was a group of phantom Indians that raided the village in Massachusetts. And and uh, it's like, wow, you know. Um, and then at the end, he'd say, but no sense in putting any of this in your magazine. Uh, it'll only rile up the UFO buffs more. Because <laughs> 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 He had already learned that um, this teenager, uh, given the opportunity, he would uh, 
anything from Keel was like, oh, yeah, I got to use this, you know. Um, <laughs> I had published nice. a couple of things. There was a guy in Oklahoma who sent me uh, comments that he'd made to him on gypsies, you know. And uh, some were these gypsy people he had found uh, who were playing a role of MIB. And then there was some who were, uh, some of the MIB were th sophisticated three-dimensional apparitions. So that went in my newsletter. And then I get I a letter from Keel, who of course got my newsletter because we were swapping newsletters. <laughs> and he wrote, I wish you hadn't taken my letter to Tony Kemry. Up. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it's just quicker this way, John. You know? <laughs> yeah, the shortcut. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway. Um, well, he surely has inspired a lot of people. Yeah. I, um, yes. I kind of I, I see him in a way with as many investigators and experiencers who have read his work and who have been inspired by it. I, I kind of feel like he's sort of shaped our minds. And if it is true that what Greg Bishop says about the phenomena is that it's co-created, that it is some sort of concatenation of communication between our minds and the mind of a non-human intelligence mixed with some physical stuff that Keel kind of shaped the phenomena itself without meaning to. And I kind of, I kind of, like the idea of him having made it weirder than it already was by paying attention to the weirdness and writing about it. So we all pay attention to the weirdness. <laughs> and so there's more weirdness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was quite nothing quite like uh, his writings. They really um, would, you know, connect with you on different levels. And, and one single paragraph from Keel might have two or three different things that would jump out of out of out at you, you know, and be um, very thought provoking and stimulate your your desire to look at it further. Um, I know with, for example, uh, when he uh, wrote uh, the Mothman prophecies. He wrote about uh, this lady he simply referred to as Jane, who had all these experiences out around Mount Misery, Long Island. And uh, she went by the, uh, she was a radio DJ for a while and was uh, Jay Perot, but actually she had a longer name than that in real life. Uh, but uh, he had hypnotized her and this entity came through and accurately predicted some plane crashes. And I thought that was, that was pretty, pretty intriguing um but um in fact i was doing a one of my first interviews with anthony peak over in england um who has really explored a lot of the psychic dynamics and one of his latest books is the hidden universe where he finally included non-human uh alien type phenomena and it's sort of a, a sort of his archetypal consciousness thing all these psychic elements uh, but i mentioned keel and he said you know because he was talking about uh people with 
Precognition Experiences, uh, which his first book was about near-death experiences, precognition, um, and uh, things of that nature. And I mentioned, oh, and John Keel. And he got real excited and says, yes, I forgot about Keel, you know, because he was describing these different cases. And he said, if you happen to have contact with him, tell him that me and some other uh, teenagers in Liverpool just loved his book, Operation Trojan Horse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I got, you know, the distinct feeling that, yes, uh, Keel affected him early on, you know. Um, and uh, there was something I was going to say about, uh, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I read that story, uh, I later contacted Brad Steiger. In fact, I called him up on the phone. And uh, I said, you know, in that where he describes that in Mothman Prophecies, Keel also mentioned that you had had similar experiences with your hypnotized subjects, you know, can you tell me about that? So he did, you know, he did hypnosis uh, to help people, not necessarily with metaphysical things, but uh, weight loss and quit smoking and various things. And at the time, he was living out uh, in Arizona, I think in Prescott. And he said from time to time, uh, and, you know, some of these people like Mormons, they weren't into the metaphysical or they weren't there for that. But suddenly they would respond and say, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do now. He said one guy that came by was a, a naval officer and uh, he wanted to... Uh, just try out the hypnosis, maybe, you know, I can't remember what it was for. Uh, I've got the information written down, but uh, it wasn't for what happened. Uh, he claimed that suddenly he uh, realized that uh, he had a purpose in this life, and he changed his career to become a, a healer. And uh, so that's just... Another area that that intrigued me, you know, I'd, I would read something in Keel's book, and then I just want to try to follow it up as best I could, and uh, and see what else might connect. And there was Brad Steiger's name, and I was getting some uh, some of his material already in the mail, um, newsletters and advertisements. You know, he's, at one time he was selling his various hypnotic tapes, so I thought. I'll see if I can just give him a call and talk with him. Um, that was back in the days when he was uh, into the wrote the book, The Star People. Um, so, you know, we can complain about, you know, some of the things that some have done about uh, the things that Keel kind of uh, failed on or some of the mistakes that may have occurred. Uh, but uh, at the same, same time, he, he gave us a lot to think about and uh, that other people at the time weren't talking about. And he really, um, if he hadn't got out in the field, because in 1966, he kind of agreed that it could be extraterrestrial, you know. But by 1967, he had had, you know, claimed he'd had all these different experiences and talked with all these experiences. And he... He claimed at that time, um, you know, experiences and stories of missing time and alien abduction, uh, the UFO field, by and large, didn't want to hear about it at that time. That was too early. 
that was before Whitley Strieber and Bud Hopkins and Hall, you know, and they kind of tailored it to the way they wanted to look at it. Um, but um, yeah, at that time he was uh, quite, um, you know, a lot of people unloaded on him. He claimed that uh, Jalen Hynek and Jacques Vallee kind of caused him some trouble early on. And when I went to um, Great Lakes Naval Training Academy outside Chicago when uh, in 72 to become a, a Navy man, I stopped by to see Hynek one, one day. Um, told me if I bought his book, The UFO Experience, he'd make time to see me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, I got the hardcover edition, yes, and I went to his home and we had an interesting talk. And I mentioned John Keel, and I expected, you know, um, okay, here it comes. But he's, he actually surprised me. He said that uh, um, he found John Keel's writings to be interesting and thought-provoking. And by golly, you know, as the years went by, I, you could see that, it, you know, Keel had actually influenced him some, too, along with ballet. <laughs> I think there's something to be said for the conversation starters, the people who are willing to go out there and say whatever's in their heads and at least get the conversation started. And most of it's going to be accurate. You may have a few hiccups, but those hiccups themselves start a conversation and it kind of helps to drive that whole, you know, the whole momentum towards a larger discussion. And then the, research and then eventually the understanding for it mm -hmm. so i feel i feel like he was willing to be the one that was out there that is like all right it's time that this becomes a household conversation and i'm just going to talk about it till it is yeah for a while it seemed like john keel was going to be forgotten i understand when he appeared after the movie came out the mothman prophecies uh he was on with art bell and Art Bell had had all kinds of wild guests by that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was like, John Keel, very interesting to talk with you. You know, um, how come I had never heard of you before? <laughs> Whoa. Whoa, and, dude. And I interviewed Ann Druffle, who wrote a number of books on UFOs and psychic phenomena. She wrote a book actually with D. Scott Rogo on abductions. And in my interview with her, some years later, she just come out with a book uh, uh, where she was providing self-defense strategies against, against alien uh, abduction. Yeah, That's negative why. alien abductions. And uh, I mentioned John Keel, and even though she had talked about the gin, very interesting things she said about it, she was like, "Who's John Keel?" You know. Wow. <laughs> so, but you know. Back in the late 50s, she started out with NICAP. So, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> but she'd come so far and not to know John Keel. Um, maybe it just slipped her mind. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I don't know how he can slip your mind, but. Yeah, because he was even on like Merv Griffin or and stuff like that. I mean, he made the rounds. He wasn't yeah. unseen. Interesting. Yeah, you know, and he was on that show there with with the real John Keel. Please stand up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and and the thing was, 
you know, James McDonald, she wrote a very thick volume about him and his life and his research. And he was, uh, you know, an Arizona physicist. Um, um, and Keel and Dr. McDonald had, Dr. McDonald had a um, correspondence. I read about this uh, later. And, and in this correspondence, uh, you know, James McDonald got frustrated with Keel and said, I don't understand you. I, you, you keep throwing all these different things in there and you seem like unfocused or whatever, you know, and uh, he just couldn't grasp uh, what Keel was trying to, to communicate with him. And I think that happened uh, quite a bit, you know, um, now as a teenager, I mean, he wrote, uh, he wrote about the Illuminati eye and, and uh, all these different things. And, uh, assassination of John Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln and all these things he had discovered. Um, and he even wrote in a three-page letter he wrote me, uh, you know, about how the elementals are busy in my area again. And they've predicted again that, uh, as they did back in 67, that something's going to happen to the Pope. And, uh, you know, I read the whole letter as a teenager, you know. Years later, I read the Mothman prophecies, and it says he's describing this. And he says, you know, it didn't happen in 67, but in, what, 71, uh, yeah. the Pope went out again. I'd had warning about it again. And this time a man came out of the crowd with a knife uh, yeah. dressed in a black robe. Appeared to, I think, uh, I think he appeared to be sort of like in a, a trance state or something, a frenzy. And... I went back to my letter from John Keel about, you know, written about four or five days before that happened where he said that. And I thought, oh, well, I should have read the papers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but anyway. Um, uh, that's really that's really interesting that you have the letter dated predating that. That's really, really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was. Um, but uh, yeah, one of the, I remember he, you know, wrote that uh, he even got a phone message because um, sometimes he had talked to apparent aliens on the phone or whoever, and and one was um, a prediction that Martin Luther King was going to be shot in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, he, you know, where he would be on standing on a, on a balcony at a mo motel and uh, gave the date it was supposed to happen. He tried to reach someone out there and couldn't make a connection to warn them. And it was like the date given was actually two months off, but it was like, I think, you know, on the same day of the month, and it was close enough to the description that, you know, that would have been quite, uh, quite intriguing. Yeah. Uh, but he always felt that uh, the intelligence, the ultra terrestrials that was orchestrating these things was kind of playing, playing with him and others. Well, one of the things that, you know, he, he always said was belief is the enemy. You, you know, you can't believe what you're told by these these intelligences you can't 
you know, even if they give you accurate information over a period of time, eventually it's either going to be inaccurate or it's going to be an out and out lie. And, you know, sometimes when I'm talking with very believery believers who mm -hmm. are very strong believers and, and it doesn't matter what they believe in, um, but they will say, well, this is, this is what I was told by, I don't know, the grays or whatever. And this is what it is. And I'm like, oh, oh, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Keel said, you know, the problem is a lot of people, if you, um, one day, uh, you see a ship, spaceship lands in your backyards, and a guy comes out, a Nordic Titan, for example, and says, uh, I'm from Venus. You know, after an experience like that, you know, you're pretty much uh, convinced and don't question it much further. Uh, he felt that happened a lot of times. Um, but, you know, if you just stop and think, um, Okay, this one's from Venus, this one's from Jupiter, this one's from Alpha Centauri, this one's from Sirius, this one, you know, and they all got all these different, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands, thousands of different kinds of uh, scenarios. They can't be all right, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's like, it's like a panic response. Where are you from? <gasps> what did we say? Crap. What is it this time? <laughs> this timeline. Uh, Venus. No, no. <laughs> Well, you know, Don't. in the 50s, it was Venus and Mars and Jupiter yeah. and Saturn. Now, you know, they realize, well, you got to make it further out. You know, it's going to yeah. be somewhere we can't, you know. <laughs> we can't check up yeah. on. and Can't check up on, yes. But, uh, uh, yeah, I even when I was a kid, I was like, hmm, Venus, hmm, yeah, maybe. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> even before Keel got a hold of me, I was kind of, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Why would... Why would you think that? But I mean, I, I asked questions in the middle of church too. So I was not a, a good candidate for believing anything particularly well. So, yeah, that's, that's not the most open atmosphere the, to ask questions at the church. <laughs> no, but, um, no, it's not. No. I was raised a Catholic and I spent a lot of time in the hallway. In <laughs> Uh, me. Well, the um, um, yeah, Keel said that a lot of the what a lot of the experiences are um, were ex-Catholics, or you know, <laughs> so. But uh, and people I with Native American Catholic, so. Yeah, I'm not. There's, there's an amount of conditioning that happens when you're a Catholic. I mean, it's just this the the ritualization of church itself. When you go, because I went two to three times a week. I ended up at school early, so they I went to church because there was nothing else to do before school, um, except cause trouble in the hallway. But um, there there is a lot of you get to a point where you have the mass memorized and you can, you can recite everything without a single thought about it. So you can be thinking about anything else in the world and still 
you know, the Apostles' Creed comes right out because you've just been saying it so many times for so long. So I wonder mm -hmm. how much of that you're conditioning your mind to be able to kind of drift, you know, kind of a double engagement where you're able to function on one level, yet still stand back and not really be present. Yeah. Dissociate mildly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that, that Barbara Mango and Lynn Miller talk about mm -hmm. that some of their experiences came from learning a mild dissociative state. Yeah. So that may be part of it, certainly. Yeah. And that's certainly what uh, the rosary is. It's, it's prayer and it's focused prayer, but it's more, it's almost meditative because you're taking yourself out of the reality you're dealing with and you're focusing on the prayer and you're counting the beads and you're very focused on that moment. So if you, if you take, I hate to say it this way, but if you take the Bible out of it, it's just another way to focus energy. It's just another way to channel intent and to dissociate. Yeah. And so many of the experiences, you know, um, like the uh, Marian apparitions, mm -hmm. uh, certainly the best known being Fatima yeah. or Fatima, Portugal. And uh, going back to 1917, the dance of the sun, I mean, so many, uh, Jacques Vallée and, and uh, John Kielquist devoted uh, some in their books about about that, you know, the uh, how similar it was to UFO phenomena. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there was a, some books written by some researchers over in Portugal who uh, started investigating a lot of that, you know, right? Even talked to... Uh, one of the uh, children who back, I think, two years earlier had had some apparitional experiences. Mm -hmm. And many times it's these young, you know, very young children, kind of like poltergeist things, you know. And uh, it may operate best with, uh, you know, these uh, people like the poltergeist, the uh, around puberty or whatever, you know. Uh, I don't know, um, but certainly that whole series of events and others, uh, and then you have like the woman in white that appears around a lot of you know UFO Bigfoot type situations that uh, uh, Tim Renner uh, has found certainly over in Pennsylvania and Maryland in his area, um, and. When I when I met him and Joshua at the uh, Strange Realities Conference in in Nashville back in October 2018, and they were talking about that, you know, it's like, holy cow, wow, this is fascinating. I I've heard of this stuff. I'm going to have to start digging, you know, and get get their book when it comes out. Um, just more and more high strangeness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. It doesn't seem to end, and and there seems to be new versions of of high strangeness. We get new archetypes of strangeness, like Flannel Man, for example. Mm -hmm. um, men in checkered shirts, um, generally red and black, but not always. Uh, you know, 
just weird apparitions. You know, we're not getting kangaroos all the time. That that was a thing. You know, I know you know about phantom kangaroos. And we were oh, getting yeah. phantom clowns there for a while. That was a thing. That was weird. I didn't like that. That was, I'm, I, I'm not okay and with that. Clowns and greys can drown in the ocean. I'm done with them all. Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, when, when Keel passed, I, I, you know, which back in July 3rd of 2009, I was, you know, I was thinking, man, we've, you know, this is such a great loss. And, uh, I, um, I remember thinking in my own research, you know, I've, I've felt like I'd had very few experiences of my own. I wanted to, uh, I remember standing in front of the mirror in the bathroom one day. That's how crazy I got. <laughs> I said, you know, I'd like to open up a portal, you know, I know this kind of sounds kind of risky, but, and uh, a little later, I mean, just a few months later, I, I, uh, I, um, a friend of mine, Sandy Nichols, um, who lives in Thompson station near Nashville. And, uh, you know, I've known him a number of years, uh, alien abductee, and uh, he introduced me to, uh, he also likes to go ghost hunting, and he invited me up to his house to meet uh, a Brett Oldham, who is a paranormal investigator. But then he didn't tell me right at first, um, but I found out later, and now he's written books about his experiences that he was also an alien abductee as well as a psychic. And his first realization of uh, all this was when he was five years old. And that same time he, uh, you know, at, well, at different times, but that same year he saw an alien, which at first he thought was a demon, uh, took later experiences to, you know, change that view. And then I saw a ghost and uh, he has a lot of psychic type, experiences and he introduced uh me and sandy to a technique he used in ghost hunting uh, called the ghost box and it's simply using a uh, digital record uh, recorder from radio shack and modifying it where it goes on continuous scan and the idea is that the um white noise between stations you would pick up voices well i you know i was I was skeptical. Uh, you know, I liked Sandy and Brett just fine, but uh, I uh, first time it was offered, you know, I let my wife and daughter attend while I looked after my uh, my daughter's uh, little boy in another room. And they came out telling me, oh, uh, Joan, my wife heard her name, Joan, and then said uh, Jesse, which was her brother who was passed on. And I thought, hmm, well, that's kind of interesting. Well, Anyway, uh, we later went on an investigation uh, down in uh, near Clifton, Tennessee, which is only about 17 miles from here. And uh, there were two houses that were supposed to be haunted. And uh, to, we had things coming out of our recorder, our digital recorders, just using the digital recorder. And at other times, uh, recording um, things coming off the ghost box. And one of the things was twice John Keel coming over the radio, AM channel. And one of the guys there claimed that he had seen what he thought was Bigfoot in the area. And they would hear sometimes tree rapping. And uh, so I, uh, you know, 
because I got the audio afterwards to to go over it, you know. And the thing that was interesting was when Brett asked, "Is Bigfoot here?" It the voice said a male voice said monsters, <laughs> and I says, "You know what?" Uh, and I showed him. I said, "In." October 1967, the first 1969, the first letter, actual letter I got from John Keel. He talked about he was writing an encyclopedia on monsters. He didn't call cryptids cryptids. He called them monsters. Because that and, wasn't a, a word then. And yeah. in the first chapter of his book, which came out in 1970, Strange Creatures in Time and Space, the first chapter he mentions again monsters you know you are going no, to see a monster at some point yes yeah no matter uh where you live someone has seen a monster within so that's, many miles <laughs> you know that, and that's where we got the name six degrees of john keel yeah that exact quote because i said it's like six degrees of uh kevin bacon but weirder <laughs> um so that's well, that's where that came from and so yeah. We did a couple of months after that. We uh, we were uh, back at Sandy's and Thompson Station, and uh, you know he sees aliens, he sees ghosts. You know you can't beat it. But um, we had the ghost box, and we had at that point I think about three digital recorders around this big uh, speaker. We had to yell to ask our questions because the speaker was louder than our voices and it was, it was kind of tough getting used to yelling. But um, I asked him if they cared, if we uh, tried to contact John Keel, because July 3rd, uh, 2010 was the one year anniversary of his passing. And, you know, I've heard that sometimes anniversaries like that are, uh, are uh, good times to make contact or connections. So everybody was agreeable to it. They didn't know a whole lot about John Keel. I was the the expert in the room there, uh, I guess. But I um, I told Brett this, and off we went. And at one point, now you could hear this. I mean, this was a strong male voice. Um, and he asked, "Is can John Keel say his name? And within just like a couple seconds, I think, John Keel... And then, um, oh, he asked, uh, what, uh, what can you tell us about Bigfoot? Because Brett had seen Bigfoot up in Ohio one time. And this male voice said, smuck Bigfoot, see? And, and then there was another voice in the background said, see? And then another one said, see? Like there were two different entities that were, you know. And so then... Um, I says, John, what can you tell us about Jadu? And I don't think Brett or Sandy had any idea what Jadu was. And uh, this voice says what well, it, it said Jadu, but it sounded like eh, Jadu, eh. And and uh, Brett says, did he just say it? And Sandy says, yep. And I thought, well, we've got to strike while the iron's hot. Yes, what is Jadu? And this male voice, into the fire, into the fire. And then he keeps talking. You know, this is supposed to be going 
on continuous scan we're supposed to get different things but this voice is right there uh just kind of fading in and out and and it says teach me outside and uh so there were several things but those are the things that really stood out that that convinced me right there you know and uh so of course i had to get my own ghost box um but Later that night, we did a second session, and this time we, uh, I was trying to be scientific, and I brought out a little index cards, and I wrote something on it, and by this time, I think my wife and uh, Brett's wife were uh, pretty much falling asleep, and it was just us guys huddled around this table, and I brought out the card, and I says, can, uh, can the spirits whoever say this, what's written on the card. And we felt like on two of them, I think I had four or five, that we got a response. And uh, we did that for a while. And uh, Brett was trying to set up on different sessions with his uh, video camera, uh, record where we where we got it. And uh, But it always seemed like uh, when we got it, really good um the video camera wasn't in the right position or whatever or captured what we <laughs> every time <laughs> but i mean i was obsessed i was obsessed uh, for for about four years i mean i was writing all this stuff and brett was helping me like we'd put our heads together and listen to the audio and try to see what we came up with you know and um and uh some of the John Keel ones are pretty clear. I, I had my own recorder and here at my house here, about 70 miles from Sandy's, I uh, got John Keel, John Keel Brent. And then I'm listening to one from Clifton from the early session that Brett had recorded, but I was present. And I had always heard it for years as John Keel. And as I listened, I could hear on this audio clip what sounded like John Keel Brent there. There was something there, and it sounded just like Brent or Brett, but it was definitely the same kind of thing I got here at the house a couple of years later, where it said John Keel, Brent, and then Bert here. And Bert was actually um, a psychiatrist that I would often write to as Bert, and he died in September 2010, and then it seemed like we would pick him up on the, the box. And... That was all very intriguing, but uh, someone pointed out, you know, Brent, you've you've invested a lot of energy, a lot of time. You're doing maybe one or two sessions yourself a week. What are you really finding out about the phenomena? It's like it's playing with you. You know, you're getting John Keel, uh, blah blah blah. In fact, one night uh, we were doing a session, and my wife uh, interjected, and she says, "John Keel." I'm trying to talk to some of my relatives on the other side. Would you please be quiet? You know, <laughs> and I, I think um, I think that kind of killed the John Keel spirit there for a while. Well, thank you for being with us, Brent. It was great to hear from you. I love all the Keel stories. I really, really, really like them. All right, Byron. Well, thank you very much, and Kendra. Uh, thank I, you. I enjoyed, that was a lot of fun. Uh, enjoyed enjoyed it a lot. It was a a lot of fun. And, uh, and tell us about your book before okay, you go. Well, well, my my book on John Keel is John A. Keel, uh, the Man, the Myth, and the Ongoing Mysteries, and it's available on Amazon. 
And I also edit a monthly online magazine called Alternate Perceptions at apmagazine.info. Comes out once and a month at the first. And you can be found on Facebook as well, as well as uh, uh, Alternate Perceptions can be found on Facebook as well. Yeah, I have the Alternate Perceptions uh, Facebook site. Uh -huh. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank and you. And it's always I... great to talk with you. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you.